The Teachers College at Emporia State University presents How We Teach This, a podcast where we talk with experts and educators. Welcome to How We Teach This. Our episode tonight, we actually have a follow-up interview with Dr. Beth Dobler. She is a professor at Emporia State University and has recently been recognized for some um, excellence in teaching awards at the Teachers College. And if you missed our first episode, I encourage you to go back and check it out because we talk about digital literacy and she explains what that is and why it's so important that everybody is teaching and addressing the critical pieces of that digital literacy for our current generation of students. So please do check out that past episode. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about the strategy that she's developed called Quest. And she's going to give us some teaching strategies, and we're going to talk about how the classroom teacher can actually better implement teaching this digital literacy piece. So welcome. Thanks, Christy. Thanks for having me for this interview. I always like talking about teaching with technology. In fact, I think when I first met you, you were in a role teaching pre-service teachers about using technology for teaching. So it's nice to kind of come back, circle back and talk together again. I really enjoyed teaching that technology course. Yeah, that's great. We're glad that you could be part of our team of preparing new teachers. So it's an honor. It really is. So introduce yourself. Tell us about your teaching background and how you came to be interested in this topic. Sure. I was a classroom teacher for 13 years. I taught kindergarten, first grade, third grade, sixth grade, uh, and then came to Emporia State. And in my position there, I've taught reading and language arts courses and supervised student teachers. And I became interested in this topic really from uh, watching my son when he was young, four years old, Um, And his first experience with getting on the internet, and that just really inspired me to think about and wonder what he would need to know and to be successful um, as a reader. And today he's 29 and he works in um, cybersecurity. And so he definitely learned some things that helped him be successful. But along that way, I've really enjoyed working with teachers and students in exploring what it means to read online and how that's similar and different to reading print. Mm -hmm. Exciting stuff. And having uh, seen it from the different perspectives, teaching technology and teaching social studies, I know that's really important that all the teachers address this, that we don't just leave it for that computer teacher to do the job for us. Definitely. It's a big enough job that we need everybody. And I mean, everybody. I mean, classroom teachers, library media specialists, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and we all can play a role in modeling for kiddos effective ways of finding and using information. That's very true. Tell us what the acronym QUEST stands for and how you came up with the idea of using this to represent digital literacy. Sure. It stands for questioning, understanding, evaluating, synthesizing, and transforming information. And I worked with a colleague, uh, Maya Eagleton, 
to create the Quest model. It was us really thinking about our work with teachers and students and processes that they use to find and understand information, especially information that they find online. Okay. I'm excited to hear more details about it. What does it look like if you're integrating Quest with project-based learning? Well, that is such a natural fit. You know, um, we definitely have a lot of interest in project-based learning becoming integral in our instruction, especially in science and math. Quest really gives kind of a foundation for any content area, but it, it sets that foundation for how we can help students find information, decide if it's useful and truthful, and then understand that information, and then use that information to solve a problem, to create a project, to teach someone else. It's a process that we're going to use throughout our whole life. And when we start with teaching children, even in kindergarten, we can begin teaching some of these basic skills. But throughout our life, we have many questions that we need to find answers to, whether it's which cell phone is the best buy or should I bring my umbrella to work tomorrow? Is it going to rain? Yeah. And we seek that information. And so Quest just is kind of giving names to the steps of what we do as we seek information. Okay, that's great. I, I know you've talked a little bit about the gradual release of responsibility and maybe we'll get into more mm-hmm. depth as we learn about the steps of Quest with that. But I thought for our listening audience that maybe we could define what that means. Sure. I think this is really important because when we're maybe embarking on something new, if project-based learning is new for teachers or maybe they feel like they haven't quite implemented it in the way they want to, it can seem a little overwhelming for us as teachers and then also for our students. I like to think about moving towards project-based learning and using the internet to find and use information, kind of moving towards that, but doing so gradually. So thinking about early on, if you and or your students don't have a lot of experience, I really suggest that teachers start with modeling what it means to ask questions and look for information online. I am not an advocate of just sending kiddos out there to do an open search on the internet without any instruction. It's kind of like somebody going on a hike without having their boots and their their snacks and their water. They're just not equipped to do that. Right. I really encourage people, teachers to start with modeling and thinking aloud. So you or you and your students or maybe your curriculum guide some kind of question or topic that you want to know more about. And it's just going to the internet and as the teacher talking through the steps of what you're doing. Oh, I'm going to open this browser. I'm going to go to this search engine. Look, I'm going to type my question right here in this box or speak my question into the box and see, these are my results. And I'm not going to click on this first one because it's an advertisement. And I know that because the box is grayed out, you know, just those little things that we just instinctively seem to know as almost constant users of the internet as adults, it's easy to assume that kiddos know those things too. And I don't necessarily think that's true. So starting with that modeling and then giving students some opportunities to read on websites that you pick out for them 
rather than having them go and find those websites themselves at first. So maybe starting with one website that everybody goes to and you talk through that together, then maybe giving them two or three websites that align with an area of the curriculum or a question that comes up in your classroom and having students do some reading and then talking together about the process that they used. And then moving towards a little more responsibility for students where you may have them use a search engine that's designed for children. Uh, One that we mentioned in our first episode that I want to share today also is Kiddle, K-I-D-D-L-E. And that's a search engine that's designed for children. So it has some filters in it, help keep them safe, and then have them search for something specific um, in that search engine. And as they get more practice with searching at that level, then eventually we'll get students to the point where they're going out on the internet and finding information themselves. I'm just curious, have you heard of the term web quest? And is that now old news? Are teachers still using a web quest? And my understanding of one is it was kind of like a recognized strategy to guide students through a research process. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, web quests, they were quite popular. I think they, they're they less common, but I do. I just the other day heard of a teacher that used a web quest. So it's more of a, like kind of a scavenger hunt that a teacher plans out for students to to go through as they're searching online. So yeah, the quest and web quest is a similar to our quest model. And the process is, is similar too. Mm-hmm. Okay. I used that when I was teaching, but I didn't know mm-hmm. if it was now like outdated or not being used anymore. But the part I liked about the web quest we did is that they had an essential question mm-hmm. and it did kind of guide the students here's this website. Here's what I want you to do on this website. Here's another one. Here's a different question. I want you to look specifically for this question's answer on this one. And and it guided them through that process. And your um, conversation about the gradual release of responsibility is what made me think of it. Yeah, definitely. There's power in guiding students through that process. And the question is so essential. Even to have that question displayed for students while they're looking online, whether it's on the board or I find it helpful to have it actually on a little note card or a sticky note they can have at their desk because there are so many distractions once they get there um, onto the Internet. And it's easy to get sidetracked and, and go down rabbit holes that aren't really helping you answer your question. So having that essential question is so important. And, and that's why we... Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so is that what Q stands for? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say, too. That's <laughs> why we built questioning into the beginning of the quest model, although it's kind of like a circle. So I, I use the word beginning loosely, because even when you ask questions and find those answers, often it brings up more questions. So it, it kind of keeps you going on that search. But yes, the Q part of quest is questioning. And we know that that humans are born curious. In fact, four-year-olds ask between two and 300 questions a day. Oh my. (laughs) Yes. Whereas adults ask about 20 questions a day. That's why they're so exhausting at that age. Yes, it is. 
And so amazing too, their enthusiasm. Our students come with curiosity and we want to capitalize on that. Kind of a fun thing to do to, to help start a conversation about curiosity, which is really that foundation of questioning. Um, the Britannica website has a little curiosity quiz that students that's appropriate for probably third grade and above, uh, even into adults. And you just answer some questions and it helps to identify your curiosity profile. What kind of style of curiosity do you have? There's the artist, the inventor, the explorer, and the scientist. And it's a great little activity to kind of start that conversation about what it means to be curious and how that curiosity can guide us. And the questioning part, we really want students to be asking questions that come from their own interest. Uh, For our listening audience, I will put a link to the Britannica Curiosity Quiz on our website. And we also will have a link to the book that Dr. Dobler wrote with a student workbook, really highlights and goes through all these steps of the Quest model. Thanks a lot, Christy. So we want to help students have a question that's just right, not too broad, not too narrow. Think about Goldilocks and the Three Bears. So when we teach them about asking questions and getting those questions to a point where they're really useful online, we want them to have kind of a broad topic and then a focus to their question so that having those two layers of a question will help them when they go to search for information. And part of that is really thinking about questions that are important to kiddos, what they want to know about, things that relate to their interests, their hobbies, what's important in their life. And then we have to balance that with questions that come from our curriculum. So that's kind of a a tug back and forth sometimes. But if we use some of their questions as kind of informal practices with reading on the internet, I know when I recently, a few years ago, worked as a school librarian, I would have students come in and they would just, you know, randomly ask questions and we would take time during a lesson to pause and go and find the answer online to those questions. And they get to feel like they are empowered to know that what's important to them, we can help them find that information. It's really a cool example of increasing that curiosity. Yeah, building off of, of their uh, what's important to them, what they want to know more about. Also with questioning, we want to be sure that we're activating their background knowledge or building it if they don't have that yet, because it's hard to ask good questions if you don't know anything about a topic. So thinking about how can we get them to the point where they can even ask those questions is important. So in the activity book, there are um, some activities where we design to help students look at questions and decide if they're too broad or too, too narrow. When they use that question, to look for information online, is that question going to lead them to the answer that they're seeking? Or is it going to get them off track or too much information where they have trouble figuring out what's important? That's really a good way to do that. I once had a student who wanted to know who invented the very first computer. Mm -hmm. And what we learned as he was doing his research is that he needed to more specifically define computer because oh, mm-hmm. 
what his definition of that computer was totally changed the responses that he was getting in his search for the answers. So I learned a lot from watching him do that. So what does the U stand for? It stands for understanding. And that really focuses on understanding the information that we get from a search, understanding how to get information. So if you think about, you know, when we're reading a book, you just take a book off the shelf, you open it up, you can start reading. But when you're searching online, you have to know how to use a browser, how to get to a search engine, where to put in your question, what to do with all the list of results that you get, how to tell if those results are going to be useful so you don't have to click on every single one. So there's a lot of groundwork that has to go into just getting to the information. And that's what the you part is. It's understanding that process of getting to the information. And a big piece of that is teaching students how to pick out the keywords from their questions. So we're really lucky when we use Google because it responds to natural language. So we just speak a question like we might ask our friend or type that into Google and Google gives us all kinds of information. But if we step out of the Google world and are trying to find information, we can't always just type in our question. Sometimes we have to help the digital tool by narrowing down what we want. So for instance, if we're using a database from the school library or if we're in a website and we're looking for a key idea and the little search box is up there, you can't just type in your question. It's not going to give you what you need because you're giving it too many extra words. So in the understanding part, we teach kiddos how to create keywords, how to use the plus sign, how to use quotation marks around phrases to help tell the search engine what it is that they want to find. And some activities in the book take kids through that process of picking out those search terms or creating those search terms and then practicing mm-hmm. on a search engine to see what they get and then comparing those results. Oh, these terms didn't give me anything. These terms gave me too much information. How do we get to just the right amount? Right. Very good. So what does E stand for? Oh, E may be one of the one of the biggest ones when it comes to reading online, it stands for evaluating. Oh. Uh, And it's really about evaluating if your information that you found is useful. Does it help you answer your question or does it just take you off on some other trail? And is it truthful? Is it true information? And that is very challenging in an online world where people can publish whatever they want. It's a big hurdle for our students to be able to figure out what is true. It's one that we have to start teaching early on so that they can develop those skills. They're going to need those skills their whole life. Even as adults, we're still trying to figure out if some things are true or not. Oh, yeah. Encounter them online. Most definitely. And I think we have the advantage of the wisdom that comes with age and practice and experience. Mm -hmm. So I like that. You mentioned the teach out loud, the think out loud, where Mm -hmm. we're actually explaining to students, oh, well, I knew this because of that, instead of them just wondering how I knew it. Yeah. How did did you get there? That's why I said earlier, we can all help 
in this area, even even people who aren't in the classroom can really talk about how they figure out what information is true um, when they're online. I like the phrase healthy skeptic. Mm -hmm. We haven't had to do that with books so much because other people have done that for us. The librarians, the publishers, the editors, the authors. But when it comes to the internet, those people aren't there to help keep information in check. And it's easy to get complacent uh, because there's so much like so much information and I even find myself thinking oh how am I ever going to wade through this and figure out if it's true or not because it's just we're just inundated with information Um, but it really is about starting to ask those questions is this real could this be real and then helping students to recognize that not everything online is real and one way to do that is through using bogus websites. Mm -hmm. And there are several out there. You can search online, put in quotation marks, bogus websites, and you'll get a list of fake websites that were created to help teach children how to figure out if information online is true or not. And it's easy for them to get tricked. It's kind of fun to try it, to share them, share those websites with students and see if they can figure out if, if the website is real or not. But it implants the seed that not everything we see online is true. And that's where we have to start when it comes to evaluating. Yes. I remember one on the Velcro crop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like growing Velcro and what's happened to the crop. I'm like, okay. Uh-huh. That, yep. that one actually caught a few students. Yes. Yes. It's fun to, just to see when they realize, oh, this isn't true. Yeah, that's a good one. All right. And it really to help them understand the reasons that someone might share inaccurate information. Why would someone do that? Why would someone post inaccurate information online? Whether it's to make money, to fool or trick someone, just just for fun, just to entertain, or to try to convince somebody what they believe. But helping students recognize those reasons can help them as they're questioning, is this true? Is this real? and understanding why people don't necessarily believe why people find that it's a good idea to post that inaccurate information. That's a good starting point for students. Awesome. So what does the S stand for? S stands for synthesizing. Uh, And then we do synthesizing with print text also. By synthesizing, I mean after you've read something or when you're online, you might have listened to it or viewed it afterwards, where you kind of try to, in your mind, pick out what's important from the information that you, you, just, you just saw. And when you take that kind of kernel of information and you put it into your own words or your own creation, then you're making that information your own. And that's really synthesizing. It's taking the information you find and combining it with your knowledge and your experiences, and then it becomes a part of you. And then you can more easily share it with someone else. And one way we can do that is by teaching kids strategies for what's known as lateral reading. So we're reading across several websites and picking out what's important, kind of sifting that down into your new understanding. 
an activity that I've done with actually with my pre-service teachers and then also with kiddos is having them come up with a question and then finding an image, a video, and a web article about that same topic to help them answer that question. And so you're really starting to layer information because you're getting it from different sources. And it's really not possible to just take that information word for word and put it into your own response. And that's what we're helping kids get away from is just copying what they see word by word. By word. And when they have to pull that information from different sources, it helps them to really have to weave it together to put it into a new format. <clears throat> they can't just rely on paraphrasing. If they're getting that information from several sources and their images and videos and articles, so they're kind of layering that information. And that's part of synthesizing. It's really deep thinking, actually. That is fairly complex. So the T. The T is transforming. So it's taking that information that we got when we were synthesizing from a lot of different sources and putting that information into a format that we can share with others. And this is another step where we want to help kids move away from just copying and, and do it. We want them to do more paraphrasing. And so one important tool is teaching them about taking notes and annotating. That helps us when we're reading online so that we can make sense of what we find, but also so that we can remember it and put it into our own words. So uh, just teaching different note-taking formats like Cornell notes or Foursquare notes. Those are all ones that people can find if they Google those. And in the book, we share the CHOMP method, which is taking a piece of text from a website or from a book too, but having it on paper that you can actually write on. And then crossing out the small words, highlighting the important ideas. So C from CHOMP is for crossing out, H is for highlighting, O is just there to help it be a real word like CHOMP. M is making notes of what you find. And then P is putting those notes into your own words. So it's a little process to help kiddos really be able to take the information they find and to use it as their own rather than someone else's work. Awesome. And encouraging them to be proud of that self-creation as mm -hmm. the author of what they've written is really cool too. Yes. Often in the transforming stage, we have them take those notes and then put them into a format that they can share with others. So maybe it's a, a poster or a slideshow or some other kind of project. And this is where project-based learning comes in as kind of that final project. We're at that step in the quest process when we take that information and put it, really transform it into something that can be used to teach other people or to solve a problem or to share with others what you've learned. Yeah, that's great. So I have off the topic and because because I thought of it in the podcast, have you ever heard of the website Insert Learning? I have not. But let me share Insert Learning with you and I will put a link to it on our website. Uh, I would encourage you to check it out. Insert Learning does allow for free for you to have five lesson plans. And if you want to do more than that, it's not terribly expensive. And if you want to just have five, you can always delete one and add a new one, as long as you only have five at any one time. <laughs>
The reason I like insert learning is because it's meant for that annotation piece. And I know there's another tool hypothesis that's oh, out there. Oh, I'm familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Insert learning is different and in my opinion, significantly better than hypothesis. Insert learning allows you as the teacher to pick a website and you can embed questions like multiple choice questions or discussion oh, cool. questions. You can even add your own video into the website. So it adds like a frame. What you do is you, when you create your lesson, you send your students the link through the control panel of insert learning and it will take them to the website. But what it would do is you would have your students like read this first paragraph and then it would slot right here underneath there a multiple choice question that they would oh, respond very to. Cool. And then you'd have them read the next paragraph and you'd have a discussion question. And you could see all their questions in the format for the teacher and they can annotate. So you can give them instructions oh, and you can say, yeah. uh, mark in red the five key words in this article. And they have to pick only five and then highlight them all in red. And you as the instructor can go back and you can see each student's annotations, which ones they highlighted in red. And you can also incorporate a discussion question where they can talk with their classmates about the article that they're in the middle of reading. I love the website because you actually are staying on this article, but the Mm -hmm. teacher can guide the students to okay, this paragraph I want you to read because you can also add text instructions. Mm -hmm. Like read this paragraph, skip this paragraph, skim this one. Oh, read this paragraph in depth. You can, I don't know how to explain it. You'll have to explore it on your own and see what you think about insert learning. It sounds very cool. And and as you're talking about that, I'm thinking of, you know, we talked about project-based learning And there's so many little steps that have to be in place for a student to be successful with project-based learning. You can't just jump in and do a project. And so practice, this is like one of those steps is you have to be able to get to information and understand it. And you have to practice those little steps to build up to being able to do the project. Yeah. Awesome. Here are some websites that we could go to for kids to find articles, some of my favorites. So you shared Insert Learning, and Wikipedia is a good resource to use for that. But other resources that could be useful, especially for younger children, would be Dogo News, D-O-G-O News. Um, Newzella has good articles that can be used for looking for information online. One of my very favorites is Wonderopolis. And they post a question each day and then they post a response. So you can have students go back and review, look at questions from the past or search for questions that align with what they're interested in. And then National Geographic Kids is also a really strong website with informational text for kiddos when they're doing searches online. So we'll get those links on our website for the listeners. And we are about out of time on our podcast. I was having so much fun. I lost track of time. And I did want to ask you, Beth, what is your vision for the future of education related to digital literacy? 
I hope teaching digital literacy skills becomes a priority for all of us because these are life skills that students will need to answer the questions that help them with the everyday problems they're going to have through their life. And it's important that we teach those skills early because there are a lot of them and they're quite challenging. Uh, and that we give students opportunities to learn from our experiences by modeling and thinking aloud, having discussions, searching together and talking about that process so that we can prepare kids for being able to find and use the information that they need. I think that's a noble goal for the future. I also agree. I think uh, it's a pretty critical skill that we need to dedicate time to weave through all of our content and every course and everything that we do, especially when we have students who are spending a lot more time on devices than what we did when we were young. Absolutely. Christy, can I close with just a quote from a teacher that I worked with? Yes, please. She said, this ability we have to make sense of information and to use it to change our lives and the lives of others is a gift. Yes, teaching these skills does take time, as does anything worth doing well. I don't want to make light of the scarcity of time in the classroom, though. I know it's a challenge to find the balance, but it's definitely worth it to prepare our students for the tsunami of information they will encounter during their lives. That's really cool. Well, I thank you so much for taking your time to join us. And I hope our listeners will find these strategies helpful for them in their classroom. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me. I'm glad to talk with you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to like and subscribe. This podcast is sponsored by the Teachers College at Emporia State University, featuring talks with experts and educators. We release new episodes every other Wednesday. Our guests provide more information on our website, www.emporia.edu slash HWTT. Follow us and share on X with at HWTT underscore ESU. On Facebook and Instagram, search for How We Teach This. If you would like to be a guest on our show or want to provide feedback, please send us an email at hwtt at emporia.edu. I'm Christy Dugan, your host and executive producer. You've been listening to How We Teach This. Thank you 